passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Uh, this morning, we are continuing through 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, we've been here for a few weeks, and we are uh, going to be finishing up chapter 5 today. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 25. Uh, this is a part of our series that we've been going through for a few months now, looking at what is the church, what is God's uh, call for the church, what is God's purpose for the church, how he wants to use the church really to the ends of the earth, as, as Melissa alluded to that we looked at back in chapter 2. And uh, this is a very unusual passage, uh, and it's a very awkward passage to preach. As, uh, as Luke read uh, some of the text for us this morning, it is about paying pastors, and it is about kicking pastors out when they uh, are, are not good pastors. So this is a really fun passage to preach about, uh, especially for me. Um, and uh, it, is, it, it is my earnest prayer. As we look at this passage, and I'm not, I'm not joking here, it is my earnest prayer that this is one of the most inapplicable sermons of your life. Uh, I, I say that because, uh, obviously, one of the, the primary focuses of this passage is what to do when a pastor uh, deserves or uh, should be removed from their office. And, and it is my prayer that our congregation never has to go through that. Uh, that, um, that every single Sunday when I or, or someone else comes up here to proclaim God's word, that they do so faithfully, uh, that, that they open the word of God and, and they just share the, the, the true gospel, not a false gospel, as Paul mentions in the book of Galatians. We've talked a, a lot uh, as we've worked our way through this book. We've talked a lot about uh, what was going on in Ephesus. What was the purpose for Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus? And one of the things that we saw is that there was a lot of false teaching going on in this church. And Paul charges Timothy to address the false teaching that's going on. But in addition to this false teaching, and we're going to talk about what that false teaching or remind ourselves of that here in a few moments. In addition to this false teaching, there was also a, a, a strain of immorality that was starting to take place in the church. That those who had, had fallen susceptible to this false teaching actually began to live immorally in the world. And so Paul is addressing this issue in the church. Last week we looked at the church's reputation and how God really, really cares for the church, really cares for the church's reputation. And last week we specifically looked at the area of taking care of widows, taking care of the vulnerable in the church. And this morning, is, in one sense, it's, it's very similar Paul, and by extension, God, Jesus, very, very concerned with the reputation of the church, specifically when it comes to those in pastoral ministry. It's my prayer that God would spare us from ever having to apply this passage, either from false gospels or because of unfaithfulness, uh, whether minor or severe. And as we all are probably aware, this is a very relevant passage in our community. I, I think that I just want to, to briefly name uh, what, is ha what has happened over the past year or so in one of the churches here in our community. They have had to wrestle through this situation in a very public way. And as we work our way through this passage, your mind's probably going to be drawn to that situation. 
It's, it's inevitable. I, I want us to just name it. Uh, I want us to, to just throw it out there. Uh, what I want to be clear about is uh, we are definitely not looking at this passage as a way to evaluate or dissect the way that that church handled this situation. We're not trying to imply that that church didn't follow Paul's words here. It's just the way things happen when you preach through books of the Bible expositionally. You start in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. You get to chapter 5 and you look at this passage. So that's all I'm going to say about that context. But we're all aware of it. And uh, our minds will probably go to there. But but let's, let's take a look at what God has for us from this passage this morning. You see, as we are probably all aware from our own lives, uh, humans are very good at hiding sin from others. We can do a really good job of, of not revealing who we truly are, and even the most noble of congregations can go astray. And so as we open up this passage, as we go verse by verse through it, I hope we can lift one truth high this morning. In the midst of pastoral failure, in the midst of church crises, this passage ultimately reminds us that the church is God's. The church does not belong to any pastor. Jesus is the one who died for the church. Jesus is the one who declares that the bride or the church is his bride. He is the one who has purchased, cleansed, clothed her in garments of white. He alone is the Lord of the church. And here in a few moments, we're going to look at God's calling for those who serve faithfully and then also for what to do with those who do not serve faithfully. Friends, Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves his church more than any of us here could even fathom. And a part of that means that when there is unfaithfulness in pastoral ministry, then those who are unfaithful should be removed. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. We're going to look at verses 17 through 25, as I mentioned. As we work our way through this passage, we're going to see that Paul gives us three commands. First command looks at how is the church supposed to uh, address or church is supposed to relate to pastors that are faithful. Next thing that Paul says or commands Timothy is how to address unfaithful pastors or unfaithful under shepherds. And then the final passage is kind of follow up. It's how do you make sure that you hire a faithful pastor and not an unfaithful pastor? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, how to safeguard ourselves uh, from what Paul is describing here in Ephesus. So as we approach God's word, let's pause, pray once more. God, we thank you for the words of this book. We thank you that they are truth. We thank you that even though this is a difficult subject to address, to talk about, probably an uncomfortable subject for more than just me, I, uh, I thank you that your word still has much to say for us this morning. We pray as we approach it that you would speak to us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, our first charge from Paul is directed toward faithful pastors, faithful under-shepherds. 
Paul has a very difficult topic to talk about. He's going to talk about those who are unfaithful, but he wants to first start with the good. He wants to remind us that even in the midst of times where some pastors are unfaithful, as they get all of the headlines, he reminds us that faithful pastors toil oftentimes without any sort of recognition. And so Paul tells the church how to exalt and to honor those who are faithful in pastoral ministry. Hear these words starting in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul is focusing here on faithfulness in pastoral ministry, and he says that the church should honor those who are faithful in pastoral ministry. From there, he turns and and he he really describes, or in this passage, excuse me, he describes what does it mean to be faithful in pastoral ministry. As we look at these verses, we, we see a few things that are mentioned here. Three descriptions of a faithful pastor, according to verses 17 and 18. A faithful pastor is one who leads well. The word rule here in verse 17 can also be translated as lead. It is the exact same word that is, uh, is earlier translated in chapter 3 when describing the qualifications for an elder, and describing that elder's role in their household. It says this in verse 4. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So, what is being described here when it talks about uh, an elder must rule well? Well, it means that an elder is supposed to lead well. Pastors are supposed to lead well. They're supposed to manage the church well. They're supposed to keep the church on point in their vision, guiding the church, making sure that the church is fulfilling the great commission that God has given to them. The pastor will lead well when he understands God's calling for the church, and he will not lead well when he does not understand that calling for the church. Second thing that Paul mentions in these verses, uh, the faithful pastor is the one who works hard. The word labor here describes manual labor. Or excuse me, the, the word toil uh, that, that we see here in this, this passage. Those who labor, those who toil in preaching and teaching. It is talking about those who work to the point of exhausting themselves. They are so concerned with faithfully working in the church. Regrettably, this is oftentimes not the case in pastoral ministry. I remember before Crystal and I moved here, uh, I I was working a full-time job during the summer and uh, had befriended a pastor from that community who was uh, a youth pastor. and, And he called me one time on my lunch break and I answered it. And I'm just about to go back into uh, to work, and, and he, he's calling me, and he says, Hey, what are you doing this afternoon? I said, Well, I'm working like you are. And uh, I was shocked when he said, Well, why don't you just skip work with me? Let's go to the movie that's playing here in town. I was not at all surprised when he was no longer employed by that church just a few months later. All too often, that is what can happen in pastoral ministry because it takes a, an extreme amount of self-discipline to stay on task, to stay faithful in working hard. God calls faithful pastors to labor, to work hard. A final description that we see in this passage is a faithful pastor is one who devotes himself to the teaching of God's word. 
chapter 4, which we looked at a few weeks ago, we saw that the Word of God is central to the ministry of the church, is central to the ministry of a pastor. Here, Paul reiterates that. He repeats that. If you're evaluating your pastor, which, I mean, newsflash, that's me. Uh, If you're evaluating your pastor and you're wanting to know, are they faithful? Ask, is the Word of God central to their ministry or is it ancillary? Is it something that is merely secondary? God calls pastors to faithfulness and he calls them to lead well, to work hard, and to commit themselves to the Word of God. And this is the hallmark of faithfulness for pastoral ministry. There are other things that we could mention. Paul focuses on these three things, likely because they were the biggest issue in the church in Ephesus at that time. Paul says that when a pastor is faithful, the church should honor that pastor. And he describes this honor by saying double honor. What does Paul mean by that? Well, first... It most basically means that you honor a pastor by showing them respect. The respect should be earned through time. Uh, A friend of mine shared a story uh, that she experienced a a while back. She's a single mom in a large uh, metro area, and she's got a a number of of small children. And she has been a part of this large church for a while. And she has found it very, very difficult for her to get to connect with other people in that church. And one of the reasons why is because she has such a hard time finding someone to watch her children, someone to, uh, something that she can afford so that way she can build relationships with other women in the congregation. One Sunday, the pastor uh, stood up front and he uh, described uh, this upcoming event for women in the church. And he's trying to elevate this uh, event, this ministry that they were having. And uh, so he describes what's going on. And this following Saturday, they were going to have a special Women's Day at the church. And then he charged all of the husbands in the congregation and said, what I want you to do is I want you as men to love your wives by taking the children, watching them so that way your wife can go and enjoy this time of fellowship. Sounds like a pretty good charge. Sounds like he was doing the right thing, right? Well, for this woman who is already finding out hard to fit in, hard to connect, the charge that, you know what, make sure husbands are the ones who take care of this and not mentioning anything about her made her feel even more isolated, made her feel even more like she didn't fit in in this church. She had two options facing her. First option, she could just give up. She could just leave the church. It was clear that she didn't fit in there. Not for lack of trying. She could just move on to another church or just stop going to church altogether. Or, second option, she could go and talk to the pastor. Go tell him how his words were perceived by her. And thankfully, that's what she did. She goes and approaches this pastor and says, Hey, I I understand what you're trying to do here, but I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. And this is how... I perceived what you said. I, I, I received that as you saying that, you know what, what really doesn't matter to me is single moms. What really doesn't matter to me is those who may have a husband, but he's not a Christian and he's not a part of the church. And the pastor, of course, is just floored. 
he thought he was, I've done that before. Uh, regretted some of the things I've said. He, he was floored because he thought he was trying to say something that would, would elevate this woman in addition to every other woman. He just didn't think about how his words were being perceived. Now, which of these two responses? Just giving up, going somewhere else, or giving the pastor the benefit of the doubt. Which of these two responses shows the pastor respect? What's the second one? Giving the benefit of the doubt to this pastor. The pastor, of course, was a man who was deserving of respect. He responded by making it his personal duty to find childcare for this woman. So that way she could go get involved. And not just on this Saturday event, but frequently. So that way she could find a way to connect into the church. I think one of the greatest ways that we can honor, respect pastors is by simply giving them the benefit of the doubt. It's really hard to stand up here and try to say things accurately all the time. And I want to be very clear because our church does a really good job at this. When I say that I hope this is an unapplicable sermon, part of that is because I hope we never have to deal with pastoral failure. The other part is because, well, we're already doing it. There's nothing else to really add. And so I'm so very thankful for that here in our congregation. That we are a church that in spite of my age... My lack of experience, my, my inadequacies, this church gives me the benefit of the doubt. It is patient with me. And it shows me respect that sometimes I feel like I don't deserve. So that's the first thing that Paul says here when he's talking about honoring a pastor. The second thing that he says is if that pastor is faithful, then you should also honor them by paying them well. This is what he's referring to when he's, when he's talking about a double honor. First, show them respect. Second, Make sure that you pay them well. Some abuse this passage. They say that double honor here means that pastors should get paid double what they're actually worth. It, it's funny, but it's also serious that some actually do believe that. If a pastor believes that, they're probably not a faithful pastor. So you can just go ahead and cross them off the list in that regard. This passage is not advocating for a life of luxury. But it's also not advocating for a life of poverty, of anxiety, of distress for those who are in pastoral ministry because of financial concerns. Paul backs this up with a biblical position. He mentions this passage here in Deuteronomy where he talks about oxen. It's an interesting passage and when we read it we can kind of be like, well what on earth is is Paul doing here? Why is he mentioning this passage about cattle here in this passage about pastors? Is there some sort of connection here that I'm missing? And, And the answer is yes, we are a lot like cattle at times. No, the passage is describing how if a an ox if, if oxen matter to God while they are working, while they are working that they should not be muzzled so that way they can eat some of the, the grain, the fruit of their labors, then how much more should a pastor be able to do the same thing? And he quotes Jesus from the book of Luke, and Jesus says the exact same thing, that the worker is worth their wages. Last week, or two weeks ago rather, Christianity Today ran an article, it was an opinion article, and it was about the importance of government supplemental programs or support programs, uh, programs like WIC or SNAP or things like that. It was an interesting read. Uh, What was most interesting to me or the most shocking was not the article itself, but actually the response from a number of pastor's wives and the former children of pastors, those who were adults and had grown up as the children of pastors. They came out in droves 
and said that they wouldn't have survived. Their father, their husband being a pastor, they wouldn't have survived if it wasn't for these types of programs. If it wasn't for government help, they would not have been able to pay their bills. They would not have been able to get food on the table. And this is the kind of situation here that Paul is describing. He's, he's talking about churches that so underpay the government systems, which there weren't government systems back in that day, that those government systems meet their needs, not the church. Paul isn't condemning government assistance, but he's saying that it is the church's responsibility to take care of those who minister in the church. Now, this is going to look different for different contexts and for different uh, congregations with different resources. This past March, I was at our district conference uh, down in Des Moines for our denomination. And as I was there, I I got to talking with a pastor of a small rural congregation somewhere in the state of Iowa. And uh, he had recently started there and was a bivocational pastor. He was hired with the recognition that this church would not be able to pay for all of his needs, all of his response, or all of his uh, family's needs. And so they said, you know what, we need you to work for us, but you're also going to have to find another place of employment. But that church did all they could to make that pastor feel honored financially. He had just gotten back from a weekend retreat that the church had, had gathered together and they had blessed that pastor with and, and had sent him and his, and his young children and his wife to a water park. All the expenses paid for this one weekend. They weren't able to pay his entire salary, but they had paid for a way or found a way for him to feel blessed financially. Some churches don't do a good, a good job at this. It is, it is shocking how some churches actually exploit and use their pastors. I, I have friends who have been uh, in the job hunt after seminary and have applied at churches like this. And, and by God's grace, they've said no because they found it out beforehand of the situation they were getting themselves into. Now, again, whether you realize it or not, Crosswinds does an incredible job at this. When I was, was uh, applying for jobs out of seminary, uh, I took this class. Uh, it was a class on basically how do you uh, get placed in, in ministry. It was, a, it was a very unique class. And, and one of the things that one of the professors uh, said was that as a pastor, you should always negotiate for more money in your uh, in your interview. I was like, well, what? That's, that's news to me. And, but but he, he gave some reasons, and, and he, was, he was smart, and, and I, I trusted his heart. It was, it was a good heart. And so uh, I come into our church's uh, interview, and, and I, I interview with the church, and, and afterward, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know if I have the courage to, to actually do what he said. And, and Crystal is like, I don't, I don't feel comfortable doing that either. And then all of a sudden, uh, we, we get the offer from the church, and, and um, by God's grace, we just said, no, we're, we're not going to have to negotiate or anything like that because God met our needs. He continues to meet our needs at this congregation. Crosswinds Church does such an excellent job at this passage. Crosswinds Church is, is so good at, at showing honor and respect to their pastors, and I'm so very thankful for our congregation here, our congregation in Spirit Lake. Some churches need to repent. 
according to these passages, but our church is not one of them. I'm so very thankful for that. And, and honestly, that is, that's a, such a sign of church health for us. I don't know if you realize that, but that is such a, a, a sign of church health that we are a God-honoring congregation. And so I guess I, w- I just want to say thank, thank you this morning. Paul, he's talking, talking about honoring pastors who are faithful, but then he transitions and says that not every pastor is faithful. Not every pastor is worthy of honor. And, and he says that those who show themselves to be unfaithful, that the sin of these pastors should be addressed quickly and it should be addressed seriously for the sake of the church. Remember, Paul is concerned, Jesus is concerned with the church. He's concerned with the reputation of that church. And so when there is an issue with a pastor, it should be addressed quickly and seriously. Pick up in verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. We will. Let's stop right there. Uh, No, let's continue. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging or doing anything from partiality. No matter how faithful some pastors are, other pastors are not faithful. And so what Paul is addressing here is he's addressing those issues where the pastor is not faithful. And he says, when someone comes forth with an accusation, first, here's how you are to address those accusations. You might be saying, well, as as I look at this passage, it seems like there's an extra burden of proof here. That you have to come with more than just one witness of these uh, of these uh, examples or, or of, of this issue. It seems like the pastor is in a privileged position here. But Deuteronomy chapter 19 tells us that the words here, that someone is not to be rebuked except on the witness of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19 tells us that these are the exact same expectations for everyone else as well. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall, be, shall a charge be established. So the pastor, like everyone else, is innocent until proven guilty. One witness is not enough. But if there is more than one witness, if, we, if we've looked at, at other passages in the Bible, this word witness here, it can refer to a person. It can also just refer to pieces of evidence. So if we have more than one piece of evidence, then the, the congregation is to act quickly. It's to act decisively for the sake of the church's reputation. What is significant about this passage is that Paul assumes that those accusations are not given to the pastor who the accusations are leveled toward, but instead to the other elders in the church. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't approach your pastor if you have a grievance. Remember, that is what part of, being, of, of, of giving benefit of the doubt is. But instead, what it is saying is if you don't have any resolution from that conversation with the pastor, then you should go to the elders for resolution. What's significant about this passage is that it implicitly argues or, or says that there should be more than just one elder in the church. Some churches only have one elder. 
The pastor is the sole elder, and then there are deacons that work alongside of that elder, but they aren't elders. They are deacons, or they are a part of a board, and they're not equal in authority to that one elder. In some cases, they're actually subservient to that pastor. And so, in issues of unfaithfulness or in issues of heresy, which is, again, part of the problem here in Ephesus, this can be extremely problematic. How are you to approach an elder if the only elder that you can approach is the one who you have the problem with, who you've already approached? Paul is telling us that it is important for us to have a godly group of leaders that you can approach for situations such as this. He describes that when you have sufficient evidence as you approach the elders, verse 20, we we see that the the pastor or the elder is to be rebuked in the presence of all. And does that mean that the next Sunday when the pastor is preaching, that as, as the pastor is getting up to preach. The elders just stand up and say, hey, by the way, he's not preaching this Sunday because of certain things. Of course not. What is assumed here in verse 20 as it starts with, as for those who persist in sin, it seems to imply that there's a step in between here where the church approaches the pastor or the erring elder in private. It is the, the hope, it is the, the prayer of that church and, and of Paul here for Ephesus that this private confrontation will produce repentance. But if it does not, then the church is to bring that charge public. Now, here's what it means, or here's what I mean when it says, when I say public. This word all here in verse 20 likely is referring to all the elders. It's not referring to the entire congregation. It's saying, let's, let's get this in, in, in front of all of the elders so that way they can all be aware of this. And from that point, you can have your confrontation and your rebuke. But at the same time that it's referring to elders in verse 20, it also makes sense for at least some of this conversation to be held publicly. You might be saying, well, why is that? Because verse 20 assumes that the purpose of bringing this to all the elders is not just for this erring elder, this erring pastor's repentance, but also so that all the other pastors, all the other elders can have a teaching moment from this experience, that they can learn something from this experience. So if Pastor X is, is uh, uh, confronted because of a theological error, let's say they deny the resurrection, then in, in all seriousness, some of that should be shared with the congregation. It highlights the importance to that church of theological accuracy. It, it, it underscores the importance of the resurrection, that we as a church think that this is a big deal. And it implicitly says that everyone else in the church should think that this is a big deal as well. If we're going to remove our pastor because he doesn't believe in the resurrection, then you should believe in the resurrection as well. If it is a moral failure, 
It should also be shared with the congregation as well, but with more sensitivity. It must be done in a way that protects the family of the pastor and its victims. It's it's important to resist the urge for gossip. But also at the same time, a lack of information can make things worse. And again, this implicitly underscores, highlights the, the moral standard for pastors and elders, but also for everyone else in the congregation. Verse 21 is a, is a crucial verse here. Paul has some of the strongest words in verse 21 to make sure that Timothy does this the right way. He says to Timothy that I charge you in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ Jesus, and in the presence of all of the angels who didn't sin, who didn't fall with Satan... Every single one of them is watching you, so make sure that you don't do this with favoritism. Make sure that just because you give the benefit of the doubt to the pastor, just like you should everyone else, that you don't err into favoritism. This entire process must be done without a hint of favoritism. There are few things more reprehensible to God than the powerful taking advantage of the powerless. And indeed, when we do play favorites, we oftentimes compound the issue, allowing others to be led astray by false teaching or allowing others to be hurt by moral failure. Paul reminds Timothy, he reminds us in this passage that this entire process takes place in God's eyes. It is God's church. It is not any one pastor's church. And so he cares for that church. And when someone is disqualified, they should be removed. And Paul transitions again. And in one sense, the last part of verse uh, of chapter 5 is addressing the aftermath of how do you move forward after a pastor is rebuked or, or released from their ministry. How do you find a new pastor? And yet also at the same time, the words here are really good advice in the midst of any pastoral transition, starting in verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only wine, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Paul tells Timothy to take your time when appointing a new pastor. This word here, this phrase, laying on of hands, refers to the appointing of a new pastor. And so what he's saying is that if someone is appointed for pastoral ministry, they're quote-unquote ordained by this laying on of hands, they're later found to be a fraud. Paul says that part of the blame for their heresy, part of the blame for their failure is actually those who ordain them. It's actually those who picked them and appointed them into ministry. And so he says that the Ephesian church must do their due diligence, even if things go slower than preferred. 
Verse 22 is, is pretty easy to understand, but verse 23 might seem like it is completely out of left field. What is Paul saying? How does this connect here? Uh, this, this passage is very personal to Timothy about making sure he drinks wine. Well, let's try to follow Paul's uh, train of thought here. Statement in verse 22 is to, to be slow, do your due diligence in, in appointing a pastor. Then he warns Timothy and says, if you don't, then you will actually bear, or bear some of the blame there. And I just want to take a step back here. That, that, that's, that's not necessarily universal. Again, humans can, can be extremely good at hiding their sin. That's how Paul closes here. Humans can be very good at hiding their sin. So I'm not saying that if a, a, a pastor falls, then it is automatically the fault of those who were on the pastoral search committee. That's, that's not what this passage is saying. But it, but it shows that there is this connection. If we don't do our due diligence, then we bear some of the blame. So he, he says that, that Timothy will bear some of the blame if a, a pastor falls. And then from there, he, he describes this idea of keeping yourself pure. It's a charge to keep yourself pure. Then in verse 23, he mentions wine. Now, remember our context in, in 1 Timothy about the false teaching that's taking place. False teaching in, in 1 Timothy in Ephesus was saying that uh, in order to truly follow God, in order to truly love God, then you have to hate everything good in this world. It was a form of legalism. It was a form of asceticism that denied the good gifts of God in order to, quote-unquote, be more spiritual. So, bring that back to our verse here. Apparently, Timothy is susceptible to false teaching here as well. Timothy is so sensitive to this asceticism that is running through the church, this belief that we must reject the good gifts of God. He's so sensitive to that that he actually begins to abstain from drinking wine. Now, there are are good reasons to abstain from alcohol, but Timothy's here is not one of them. In fact, it is one of the dangerous reasons to abstain. Timothy was actually pleasing the false teachers, and he was actually subconsciously and, and unconsciously, he was, he was actually elevating their teaching and saying, you know what, this is actually true. To make matters worse, water in the first century was uh, very dirty. It was often the place where diseases were found. It was unsafe to drink. And so Timothy's commitment to abstain from alcohol here For the wrong reasons, remember, he's doing this to please the false teaching. It actually makes him sicker. Wine was commonly used in the first century to sterilize the bacteria in water, this dirty water. And so people would often mix them together and drink. And so Paul is concerned with Timothy's health. He says, Timothy, you need to drink some more wine. You need to make sure that you're not drinking water just because you want to make everyone happy in this church. In fact, you are called to keep yourself pure even from this false teaching. After this interjection to make sure that that Timothy keeps himself pure, he he returns to his train of thought. And he says, don't be hasty. Why? Well, don't be hasty because sin can be easily hidden. Some sin is obvious. It is well known. Other sins are 
hidden and will remain hidden for quite some time. But they can't be hidden forever. I think verses 24 and 25 are a really good way to end this passage. They're a really good way to end this passage because in addition to telling us that there is this uh, temptation in all of us to hide our sin, there's also an assurance here. There's also a comfort here because even as the church struggles in the aftermath of failure, Paul reminds us here that even when we don't see sin, God does. Even when we are blinded or deceived by others, God is not. Everything will one day be revealed. Everything will one day be made known. And God will address that sin. And we can have the greatest confidence in that. But lest cynics be disillusioned... That every pastor is hiding something. Paul ends in verse 25 on a positive note. He says that there are other pastors who label or who labor hard. They, they work hard and they do so quietly without any of their good works being known. But they are known to me. And I just want to encourage you this morning. Because that's not just true for pastors. Many of you may feel like as you labor, as you try to do good, as you try to honor God in your life, that nothing is going right. God isn't recognizing it. Other people aren't recognizing it. That You are just left out on an island and you wonder, what is the point? Paul's words here remind us, good works are conspicuous. God will not let them go hidden for long. They might go ahead and longer than we would desire. But if we commit to continuing to do good work, we will reap what we sow. That God will reward us for our good works. Paul closes here with a wonderful charge. Continue to labor faithfully. Do not grow weary in doing good. Be weary of sin, especially hidden sin. You see, in the end of Revelation, we catch a glimpse of God's church. We catch a glimpse of God's desire for the church. In Revelation chapter 19, he he describes his church as holy, as pure, as spotless. It says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What's interesting about that passage is that oftentimes when we think of our righteous, our, our righteousness, the fact that we are clothed with righteousness, we think of, of Christ's righteousness, and indeed that is true. 
We are made righteous because of what he has done for us. And yet here it describes the, the clean white garments worn by the saints as the righteous deeds of the saints. Friends, do not grow weary in doing good. Continue to be faithful. Continue to be steadfast. Do not be discouraged when a pastor fails. A pastor is but a steward of God's church. It has been entrusted to him for a season and will be returned to Jesus in due time. That steward must be faithful. They must lead well. They must work hard. They must be devoted to right teaching. But it is God's church, not theirs. So let us as a church continue to be faithful in doing good, knowing that God will reward us as we persevere. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the words of this passage. Thank you for the charge to remain faithful, to remain steadfast. God, thank you for the good, healthy church that Crosswinds is. I pray for your continued blessing upon this congregation. And God, I, I pray that you would protect us from the attacks of the enemy. Specifically, the attacks of the enemy through false teaching and immorality, God. God, give us the, the strength, the courage to do good without giving up. Knowing that even as we may labor and toil and do good works quietly out of the, the sight or the presence of others, that God, you see us. Thank you for that promise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.